This morning's sermon is based on 1 Peter chapter 3. Would you turn there with me? 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, good morning. There's just a couple of announcements, or maybe just one quick announcement that I have. As we've been going through marriage and husbands' roles and wives' roles, well, last week we did wives' roles, and today we're going to focus on husbands. There's just a lot of, and especially since I'm the pastor for Family Ministries, I went ahead and put together a a list of resources that might be helpful to you, and uh, I wanted to make that accessible. So if you've never really looked inside the inside flap of your bulletin, we always have some sort of devotional in there, and I listed about half of my list in there, so you can access it there, but I also listed the full list on my blog, and then I connected that to the GCF website as well. So if you're looking for good resources on being a husband, being a wife, family, parenting teens, uh, through particularly through gender and sexual related type things, I've compiled a list for your benefit, and hopefully that is helpful for you. So just know that that is there. Um, Let me go ahead and pray, and then we can get to work. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that it speaks to us. And I pray, Lord God, that we would hear your word today and that we would receive it. I pray, Lord God, that um, we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that in the proper time we would be exalted by you. And I do ask, Lord God, that um, you would both confront us and encourage us with the good news of the gospel. So be here. We pray that you would do your work in this church, root out sin where it needs to be rooted out so that we can see you more fully and we can worship you with deeper joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start off today just a little bit different. I'm going to uh, display my wardrobe for you. Um, this is a, a T-shirt, actually. We were on a mission trip a couple of weeks ago, and um, this is a T-shirt that <laughs> there's Melissa, who actually you were one of the um, uh, the promoters of me actually purchasing it. So there was a couple of female. Uh, uh, perspectives that were there, and they thought that it was kind of cool. So I thought, well, all right, I'll make the $12 plunge and go ahead and get the T-shirt. But as you can see, it's, uh, it spells dad at the top, 
right? D-A-D-D. And um, uh, for those of you who can't see so well, that's a shotgun, all right? And, um, and then underneath, those are shotgun shells. And the D-A-D-D stands for Dads Against Daughters Dating, all right? So... <laughs> Um, there you go. There's a T-shirt. And uh, the, well, the thing I really like about the shirt is um, how it captures a father's heart for his daughter. How it captures a father who loves his daughter and sees his daughter as precious to him and how he longs to protect her from harm. And let's face it, Daughters dating teenage boys is scary. <laughs> so um, anyway, I have two daughters of my own, and that shirt struck a chord with me, so I made the $12 plunge. And if nothing else, I'm not even sure where I would wear that shirt. Probably maybe when Lydia starts dating when she's 25, because um, that's when it's going to happen. Um, but anyway, it was a $12 sermon illustration, if nothing else. And you may not be able to see the connection to the sermon quite yet, but eventually, if you can kind of just put that on hold and thumb it in your brain, we'll get, we'll get there eventually. And last week, I, like I said, we spent our time focusing on um, the call of wives to submit to their husbands and how this reflects, how submission reflects the beauty of the gospel, and how the gospel in turn makes women beautiful as they submit themselves to ultimately God and then to their husbands, even if they aren't doing what they're called to do. And this week, I'm going to focus on husbands and their specific call to lead their wives. So I'm going to focus on verse 7. We read 1 through 7, but really I'm just going to narrow it down to verse 7, and we're going to look at that. And there's going to be some hard things, I think, for us to hear, but I do hope that as a church, we would come to realize that this is a sermon for all of us, right? Even though I'm dealing with marriage, and even though I'm dealing specifically with men and husbands, and I know many of you are not men or husbands in this congregation, but the marriage call and marriage as an institution designed by God is something that the church is all on board with. We all have a part to celebrate this and to protect this. And there's things that we can learn about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and how God designed masculinity and femininity. We can learn things about the heart of God and we can learn things about marriage in itself. So I hope that you guys will see how this sermon isn't just directed at husbands, but at all of us, and we all have something to take from this. So without further ado, let's get to work. Likewise, verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs, with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered, okay? So let's break this down a little bit. Peter assumes that husbands are the heads of their wives, which means he's calling them to fulfill their calling to their wives 
just like Jesus himself fulfilled his calling to his church. We have been talking over the last couple of weeks about how looking at the cross of Christ, looking at the gospel of Jesus, totally transforms. It utterly transforms all of your human relationships. And today we're going to see Jesus as the perfect picture of masculinity and the perfect picture of what godly leadership looks like. And let's face it, in our culture, there's mass confusion about gender roles, all right? And to fully appreciate Peter's instruction, we have to understand, I think, two things. Number one, we have to understand the cultural context into which Peter talks to uh, the, the Roman Empire, and then we also have to understand the second thing, and probably more importantly so, we have to understand the way sin And the entrance of sin into the world has impacted and distorted gender roles. All right? So let's go back to the garden, if you will, the Garden of Eden. And we see that God's design for headship and submission is not a result of the fall. It's not a result of sin entering the world. A lot of people say that that's the case. God designed headship and submission prior to sin entering the world. Headship and submission is distorted by sin. All right? God put Adam in charge of the garden, and he gave Eve to him as his helper. This is why Satan was crafty. We read, Satan was crafty. And how do we see him be crafty? Well, the first thing about his craftiness is that he goes to Eve when really she was not in charge. And after sin enters the world, after they took the fruit, it was Eve who kind of started that whole process. God, who does he come to? Adam, where are you? Satan goes to Eve, God comes to Adam. Right? So headship and submission. You see that God sees headship in a particular way. And even though both men and women are bearing the responsibility of their sin, Adam has a particular burden of responsibility. And we see that when God says, Adam, where are you? I put you in charge. You were called to lead. You were called to protect your wife. You should have intervened. You should have led your wife away from spiritual disaster and led her into holiness. You didn't. And that's why God comes after Adam. And gender roles, as a result, got all mixed up and confused and distorted. The woman now faced the curse of bearing children in great pain. This is what Genesis 3 tells us. And additionally so, and perhaps even more importantly, God said that the woman's desire would be for their, for their husband, for the man. Now before you jump to conclusions about what that means, it means this. It doesn't mean that she will desire to love him. 
Not that, that, that she won't desire to love him, but what, it, what he's saying is, your desire will be to rule over him. That's what the word means. It says that in Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door for you, Cain, and its desire is for you to rule over you. So now the woman who was designed to be the helper of the man, her curse that she bears is that now she wants to rule over him. Right? Reversed. The gender roles. Now man faces, he has his curse of his own. He faces the toilsome work that is painful, that is painful and oftentimes unrewarding. The ground is cursed. The, his work is going to be difficult. With blood, sweat, and tears, he's going to bring home his paycheck, right? And it will be oftentimes unfulfilling. And then we also see, I think by way of implication, that gaining the respect of his wife is going to be very difficult for the man due to her curse and due to the fact that now he has to deal with his own curse as well. So you see, gender roles are all in a knot. And by and large, we see sin distort masculinity in one of two general ways, right? Men who are called to lead and have spiritual authority err on the extreme of passively escaping responsibility. That's the one extreme. They passively escape responsibility. Or the other extreme that they perhaps err on is that they embrace their responsibility with an authoritarian, domineering style dictatorship form of leadership. Both are extreme distortions of what God intends for biblical masculinity. So either you're the passive escape artist or you're the domineering dictator. And it's really hard, I think, for men who are fallen under sin to find the middle road between those two extremes. It's really easy to shift in between those two forms of responding to responsibility in this world. The passive escape artist's form of masculinity is a distortion of God's design for masculinity, and it is destructive. And I could go on and on and on about a list of how this looks, but just to give you a little flavor, perhaps, of how the passive escape artist looks, it could be blame-shifting, a pattern of blame-shift. It's not my fault, it's theirs. It's, it's not me, it's my situation, right? It's excuse-making, one after the other. It could be self-pity, right? It could be any form that self-pity takes. Hiding behind media or entertainment or sports excessively could be a way of just passively escaping the difficulties and the hardships of life. It could be indifference, right? Just an overall, I don't care about anything. Or it could be implosive anger, right? There's explosive anger that's very visible. Implosive anger is just as destructive, but it's kind of kept to yourself. It could lead you to shutting down or checking out or any other way 
that you might be physically, emotionally, or spiritually absent. Are you the dad who comes home and just looks at your device and just kind of lets life go by while you check out of your responsibility? This is the passive extreme of masculinity. And it's destructive. On the other extreme, we have masculinity that is expressed in more domineering and authoritative type ways. And again, I could go on and on, probably spend a sermon detailing all of these sorts of behaviors, but this could be explosive anger, yelling, throwing things around, even physical abuse, or the intimidation of of physical abuse. It could be the man who gets angry or shows you that look so that everybody in the house is walking on pins and needles because they're just not sure how dad's going to fly off the handle, right? This is a kind of domineering, dictators-type extreme and distortion of masculinity. Being a man does not mean people are afraid of you. Because they don't know when you're going to blow a fuse. It could be intimidation. It could be endless criticism that is biting and hurtful and intentionally so. It could be manipulation or the desire to control and being a control freak. And there's going to be consequences to pay if things aren't done a certain way. Right? It's always having to be right. You've got a story, well, I've got one better. You said it this way, well, I'm going to correct you and say it a different way so that my way is the right way and not your way. You're always kind of wrong, I'm always right. Do you know anybody like that? It could be purposely withholding something in the form of manipulation. All of these things amount to in our expressions of the domineering dictator form of masculinity. It's a distortion of what God calls men to. And equally so on the other side, the passive escape artist is also a distortion and it is destructive as well. And ever since sin has entered the world, masculinity has spun into a state of confusion and men tend to respond to their role in one of these two ways. They tend to. Not every single time, but they tend to. Now let's talk about the Roman world and the context into which Peter is talking to his people. Peter is is addressing sins that distort gender roles, but he's also addressing the culture in which believers lived in the Roman Empire. Now here's a few things that we know about the Roman Empire. They had an emperor. And oftentimes the emperor allowed, even promoted, the idea that they should respond to him as a deity, as a god, right? So this kind of tells you a little bit about how they viewed culturally leadership. And again, the Romans were known for their brute leadership tactics. They were cruel, right? They intimidated people with torture, so that they would respond in submission, that they would drive their will out of them, and that, that, that's how they would get people to respond and follow them. So this is the way, if this is the way leadership was viewed culturally in the Roman Empire, you can imagine 
do the math. Figure out how husbands then would feel liberated to treat their wives. We learned last week that in the Roman Empire, wives or women were treated as second-class citizens. So if this is the kind of way that Rome was led, and this is the structure in which it was executed, imagine how husbands would naturally probably take advantage of exploiting their wives to some extent. And Peter comes in and says, no, no, no. We're going to do this a different way. How does Peter solve the distortion of, of sin and the cultural, cultural reinforcement of the Roman abusive power? How does he solve this? How does he address it? And I want to say he looks at the cross of Christ. If you look at the end of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, we see Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, the one who became a curse for us upon the cross. And that now is what Peter says. Husbands, look at Christ and make the connection. Make the connection of Jesus, the leader, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and make the connection to how he led and how he was a man and how that would now inform the way you treat your wife. That is the way Peter calls on his people, believing men, believing husbands, to identify masculinity. You want to know what a man is? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how you should love your wife and live with them? Look at the example of Jesus. And make the connection. Love them as Christ loved the church. He says a couple of specific things. Let me break this down. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. All right? So live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman. And then he also gives a consequence. If you don't do this, your prayers will be hindered. We'll talk about that. Let me start with, what does it mean to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel? What does that mean? Does anybody else look at that and say, what the heck does he mean by that? What is he getting at? Let me say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that women are weaker than men or unequal to them. It doesn't mean that men are the superior gender. I should repeat that. It does not mean that men are the superior gender. And therefore, it doesn't mean that husbands should have pity on their wives and cut them some slack because they're just not up to par. So they just can't hack it the way a real man can. That's not what it means. And I've come across men who treat their wives as if they truly are weaker and they just can't slice. You know what? There are some ways perhaps that women are weaker, but there's many ways that men, you guys are weak. I would argue women are a lot tougher than you. They complain less. You guys complain a lot. You tend to, anyway. I have a cold. Yeah, well, I gave birth to your children. <laughs> How's that for toughness? There's nothing weak about that. So, 
I don't think that it's getting at the males are the superior gender here. It could mean that women are generally physically weaker. So don't abuse your power and throw her around and intimidate her with physical force. Don't do that, right? But I also think that perhaps in the context, women were considered second-class citizens, as I pointed out, and they were more vulnerable, generally, of being taken advantage of. So Peter is saying, don't give in to what is culturally acceptable and exploit your wife. Okay, so women aren't considered second-class citizens in our culture. So I think we have to drive this a little bit closer to home here. I think he's saying something more profound. He's saying, and I want you guys to follow me here, because this is really important, and I feel like this is like, you got to get this part. He's saying your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life with you. That means that she, just like you, are also being conformed into the image of Christ, because she is a fellow heir with you. And that way she is completely, utterly, totally on the same plane as you are. And she is being called, or she is being conformed into the image of Christ. And you, husband, are called to headship. You are called to spiritual leadership. Which means you have a responsibility to make sure that she becomes conformed into the image of Christ. That's what it means when he says, she is a fellow heir of the grace of life with you. God set up headship and submission, and what that headship means is that you, man, husband, have a responsibility to exercise your authority. God has given you husbands authority. To do what? To abuse her? No. To see that she becomes like Christ. You have authority now. If there is a hierarchy of any sort, it is so that you can be higher, so that you can serve her, and that you can see that she becomes holy in God's sight. This is what Ephesians 5 says. Which means, here's the subtle implication of this. There is a sense in which a woman is somewhat vulnerable in the marriage relationship. Why? Because he has called husbands to take the lead. And so far as husbands don't take the lead, you are leaving your wife vulnerable. You are leaving your wife without you taking the lead in her spiritual oversight. Not that she is dependent upon you, because God has other ways of sanctifying her and making her into the image of Christ. But, husbands, you have authority, and that authority is to be exercised to oversee her soul to protect her spiritually, to see that she is becoming more and more into the image of Christ. 
We tend to think of sin in terms of commission, doing things that we know we shouldn't do, right? But there's the sin of omission. What is that? It's not doing the things that you should do. Husbands, you are called to lead your wives so that she, because she is a, a, a fellow heir of the grace of life with you, you have the authority vested in you and now the responsibility to see that she becomes like Christ, to see that she's protected from all of the evil ways. And so far as you abandon that call, you are leaving her in a state of vulnerability and you are abusing the authority that God has invested into you. And you are not following. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since she is an heir with you of the grace of life. You're not just guilty of things that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just say, you know what, I'm not doing anything bad, so therefore I'm okay. You also have to ask, what is God calling me to do that I'm not doing? And if you are just negligent of your call to lead your wife to model Christ, if you are on the passive side of, I'm just checking out, this is destructive. And this is a violation of what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter 3.7. In this, in this passage, you're not just guilty of doing things that you shouldn't do. You are also guilty, potentially, of not doing what you should do. It means that we have to get masculinity right. And we have to repent, men, of the ways that we've become either passive escape artists or domineering dictators in our marriages because in so doing we abuse the authority that God has placed upon husbands to lead them into holiness as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So I commend this to you men. Where are you at with this? God didn't come to Eve and say, Eve, where are you? God came to Adam And he said, where are you? Rejecting your call to leadership is as destructive as being a domineering ape that's abusive. And I understand that we're sinners. Men, we're broken. Wives, you are sinners. And there are ways that you contribute to the conflict and the tension in your marriage. But the reason why I'm focusing on men is because God has called men to lead. You know, I hit a point in my marriage where I was like, you know what, I I could lead my wife if she just would submit to me. (laughs) And God said, you know what, you're called to be the leader. She'll submit to you when you respect her or when you are respectable and you show Christ to her. You take the first step because you're the leader. So both husbands and wives contribute to marital conflict. I understand that. 
But men, you bear primary responsibility. And what you're called to, whether your wife submits to you or not, whether she respects you or not, you are called to love her as Christ loved the church. And I want to shower you with grace here. Because part of your leadership, I understand sin enters and you fail. And part of your leadership, this is the glorious news of the gospel, is that you can lead by repenting. When you are humble and you say, you know what, I'm sorry, I really blew it. I need help. Please help me, please pray for me. I'll get connected to the church better. Whatever it is, you can lead your wife through repenting. So nobody's asking you to be perfect, just humble and repentant and honest. And I want to create another category here since we're on the topic. One that goes beyond just the normal sin instances here and there in a marriage. And the category of abuse. Because if your failings or if your patterns or if your sin becomes a pattern that's calculated and you do so intentionally and you know it and you've reached a point where I don't care anymore. She doesn't respect me so I'm just going to not respect her and I don't really care if I'm called to be like Christ. If you are in the patterns of threatening anger or maybe it's the endless criticism trying to get at her. Maybe it's Invoking fear or giving the silent treatment, whatever it might be. If these are patterns and if they're calculated, these aren't just one-offs. You're not just caught in a rut. You are abusing your wife. This is abuse. And the response is repent. And here's the consequence, men, husbands. This woman may be your wife, but she is also God's daughter. You're making the connection to the t-shirt now. And he loves her. And she is precious in his sight. And he is not with you when you abuse your authority and when you abuse her. God does not have his ear pointed at you. Your prayers will be hindered. This is serious. I hope we can understand this. I hope this lands upon us. That God would actually say, if you do this, I won't listen to you. Can God say anything more serious than that? Brothers. And I think wives are implicated in this too. But men, you bear the responsibility of leadership, of loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Stop playing games. Now, I don't have anybody in particular. But I know that God dealt with me very seriously about this. And I know if he can deal with me 
and exposed patterns of abuse in me that need to be rooted out. I'm just laying it out there for you all to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves, husbands. Marriage is a big deal in God's eyes. He cares about your masculinity. He cares about your femininity, wives, women. He cares about the proclamation of the gospel through husbands who love their wives and wives who submit to them. He cares about these things. Here's a statement from um, the book that was written by um, the Courageous movie. When you get married, when you got married, you were declaring your wife holy unto you. That doesn't mean she's perfect, but you set her apart in your eyes above all the other women on the face of the earth. She became your prized possession for you to cherish, love, and protect for the rest of your life. And it is your responsibility to guard and keep her in that holy place of honor. If you belittle her or treat her in a harsh unloving ways, you are not just acting badly. You are profaning the treasure God has given you. Let's be a church that lets God do his weeding out. And I want to say, where there's humility, where there's repentance, God shows up and he is so eager to forgive. So there's hope. This is a stinging word, but this is a hopeful word. And I hope we receive that that way. Okay, so let's talk about this positively. I'll close with this. What does it mean positively to live with your wife in an understanding way? The verse literally reads, live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That's the command. I'll lay out three things that it means, that I think it means, probably more. Living with your wife in an understanding way means that you know God's purposes. Living with your wife according to knowledge means that you know God's purposes for you in marriage. It it means that you know his purposes for marriage. That is a reflection of Christ in the church. It means that you know and embrace how sacred marriage is, how precious your wife is in his eyes, and how you are called to model Christ to your wife, whether she deserves it or not. This is what it means to live with your wife according to knowledge in an understanding way. Second, okay, I'll try to end on a little bit lighter note here. All right? Let a little air out of the tire right now. It means that you understand and you know that your wife is utterly different than you. (laughs) So this is kind of an implied difficulty in the husband-wife relationship. And, you know, talking personally, simply, sometimes I simply marvel at how different my wife is for me. We're both part of the human species, But sometimes I even question that. How can we both be human beings? 
She's so wildly different from the way that she thinks, from the things that she prioritizes to the values that she has, just her perception, just everything about her. Biology and science has proven that women are actually more different than men, or they're different than men, going beyond just the physical, obvious differences, right? That there's actually emotional brain-type things going on that are wildly different than men. It's like, yeah, well... You don't need a scientist to tell you that. Just get married, and you will know these things. All right, we have a picture. A little comedy. The differences between men and women. Can you guys see that okay? I don't mean this to be insulting. I just kind of sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. There's a little circuit board, and on the top... There's one switch on and off, and that's the man. And on the bottom, there's the woman with all kinds of dials and you name it. <laughs> so again, I don't mean this to be insulting, but the reality is women are wildly different than men. Now, in the discussion of homosexuality, we'll address this, because I think it makes a point here. This is the often overlooked part, namely the spiritual implications of homosexuality. When the Apostle Paul rejects homosexuality, he's doing so in the context of idolatry. This is important to understand, that the point that Paul is making about why homosexuality is wrong and unnatural, he's saying, okay, what, what do we know about idolatry? We know a, a number of things, but I'm going to key in on this one. The problem with idolatry, among other things, is that it is the creation of a god after man's own likeness. So the problem with idolatry is that it is man's attempt to create a god that is just like him, just like themselves. This is what Paul is keying in on. Paul says that the core issue of homosexuality is this core issue in idolatry that men and women or women desire to love someone and worship a God that is just like them. Do you guys see the connection between idolatry and homosexuality? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the problem with homosexuality is that it is man's attempt to love somebody that is just like them. You know that a culture who has embraced homosexuality has long since embraced idolatry because the core issue of idolatry, namely, it is the attempt of man to worship a God just like themselves, is the core issue in homosexuality, namely, I want to love somebody just like me. And therefore, Wives and husbands loving each other, men loving women, reflect something about the nature of worshiping a God that is utterly different than humanity. I hope that registers with us that the only way to know God is to completely lose sight of yourself and go to Him on His terms to step outside of yourself. And you know what? Women loving a man and men loving a woman is much like that. Men, if you are truly going to love your wives in an understanding way, 
you have to totally get outside of yourself and enter into her being, lose yourself, and focus on her. Isn't that amazing? I hope you guys make the connection with that. And third, here's a third thing that it means to live with your wife according to knowledge in an understanding way. It means that you delight in the ways that your wife is different than you. Not just acknowledge it. It means you delight in it. Let me tell you what I mean. There's some ways that women mesh, or women and men mesh, and there's some ways that women and men clash. Can I get an amen on that one? (laughs) Living with your wives in an understanding way means you don't just delight in them for the ways that you obviously mesh, for the ways that she completes you. It's easy to delight in your wife when, let's say, she's better at keeping the house clean, and you like that, and you think, wow, where would I be without my wife? I'm so thankful for her. I delight in the way that she's different than me. But what do you do with the ways that you clash? And I think too often, it's easy to just relegate that to compromise. Well, we'll just let her be over there with that, and I'll just kind of be over here with that, and I'll just never understand that. And I'm calling you, if you are a husband that lives with your wife in an understanding way, enter into that and delight in the ways, all the ways that she is different. It doesn't mean that you have to like romance movies or anything like that. (laughs) Um, But it does mean that you are understanding her, that you're seeking to value her, that her differences aren't just weird and I don't get it, but they actually have some kind of meaning and it makes up who she is and it's a valuable perspective that God has made her in his own image. Delighting in all of the ways that this woman just baffles you. Learn who she is and learn, even if you don't agree with it, why does she like cheesy romance movies? (laughs) It means you spend time studying her, observing her, so that you can serve her better. It means that instead of compromising and just saying, I'm never going to understand why you do this or think this way, that you understand her world from her perspective. Husbands who live with their wives according to knowledge or understanding seek to grow in their knowledge of their wives' goals and desires. Do you know the desires, the longings of your wife and the goals that she might have? It means growing in the knowledge of your wife's frustrations. Do you know, husbands, what frustrates your wife? Have you ever gone to them and said, what is it about me that makes it hard for you to submit to? How can I serve you better? Do you know her strengths and her weaknesses, both or physically, emotionally, and, and, and in the spiritual realm? Do you understand these things so that you can lead her to Christ, so that you can help her root her faith in Christ? Living with your wife in an understanding way means prioritizing your time and your money so that you can have the experiences and the opportunities with her that you need 
to cultivate love and affection and romance. I understand it's tough when you've got little kids in the equation. Don't let your kids rule your marriage. Before your kids were, you were. They're there because of you two falling in love. Keep that love going. Teens, volunteer your time to young married couples with young kids and ask them to babysit. Babysit for them. One day you're going to get married. You guys are all interested in each other. You want to get married, right? You're going to have little kids running around. You're going to understand how hard it is to have little kids running all over the place. So I call on you. You can serve young people. Say, hey, can I come over on Friday night and watch your kids so you two can go out on a date for a couple hours? It's a good idea. Just saying. Husbands, are you taking initiative to cultivate the kind of time that you need with your wife to love her? In conclusion, God loves marriage. Very important to him. He cares about manhood. He cares about womanhood. Calling us to stand firm. Stand firm in his design and delight in his design so that our marriages will become a blessing to us and a testimony of the saving power and love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask, God, that you would use this message and your intended means for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.